0: Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Quantos Indios Podemos Ser is the title of the latest book by Gabriela Gutierrez y Mousse, or in English, How Many Indians Can We Be? A good question. <laughs> to be a Chicana and represent the United States at a poetry festival in India can be a transformative experience, allowing one to see shared traumas, shared mechanisms for coping with the realities of cultural colonization, and an opportunity to use poetry to better understand just what is going on. Dr. Gabriela Gutierrez-Imus is a polylingual poet, critic, translator, cultural worker, and professor in modern languages and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Seattle University and she's our guest today to talk about how many Indians can we be. Gabriela, a joy to have you here to talk about this.
1: So wonderful to be here in the Northwest, in such a beautiful place next to the lake, Lake Washington, and with you, Pablito, (laughs) and uh, to be here with another Latino poet. It's, it's such a pleasure and such an accomplished one. Thank you.
0: I agree with you, and I thank you for recognizing that. Tell us about how the trip to India came about.
1: Well, Dr. Alicia Park-Noy, is, um, um, I believe she just retired from Loyola Marymount, but she's one of the disappeared. She's one of the people in Argentina that were imprisoned in La Escuelita, La Escuelita. The little school is her book. She's also a poet. She recommended me for this and connected me with the people in India. Uh, She knows a lot of poets. It was a true honor. I think they they had to have several people recommend you. I don't know who the others were, but I got to go to India uh, which was one of my dreams. And I just actually learned that we are not really supposed to be indios; we're supposed to be sin Dios, without God. So it's so interesting how there's all these inventions about what a name means, but the name as as language grows and evolves and changes, and language has its own mind and its own culture, it has changed. I always felt close to people from India. I lived in the, in the at Stanford uh, while I got my master's and PhD, and I lived near or in the Bay Area and met a lot of people from East India. I still remember true diversity that happens in Oakland, in, in San Francisco, which is This Oaxacan woman uh, who was there giving uh, tamales to her children at the BART. The BART had stopped and this little East Indian boy went over and you could tell he was hungry. So the Oaxacan woman gave him a tamal, (laughs) a warm tamal that she had in her basket. And her parents, his parents, instead of, you know, saying, oh, why are you eating? They were so grateful. And so that type of, you know, without, neither of them spoke each other's language, but that ability for exchange. And that's how I felt in India, Paul. I felt very rich. I felt like I'd just gotten there, and it didn't matter where I went. People embraced me. It was a dream trip the poetry festival I went to in Nagpur, there were two enormous halls, and there were people in the other hall cooking and baking for us like 24 hours a day. And our poetry was up on these, I think they were sheets, but maybe they were screens, these enormous screens in five languages because people had taken the care to translate the poems of each of us into five languages, some from the East and some from the West. And so I learned a lot. I learned how magical poetry is and how we should treat poets. That's what I learned from this trip.
0: When I interviewed Russell Means, he said that, The reason people on this continent, North America, got the name Indians is that they were indios that they were so connected to God that they would be easy to conquer. That's Mm -hmm. what Russell said. That's how that Mm -hmm. uh, uh, began. And I I think I find that very interesting. I had a similar experience in China, going to the Mm -hmm. Qinghai Lake International Poetry Festival Mm -hmm. and felt that that's the way that poets should be treated. But... um, doesn't always happen that way there's a phrase in your book about the paper cuts of colonialism Mm -hmm. can you unpack that for us or maybe give us an example (laughs) (laughs) maybe the most recent example no i mean this i I Um, mean you know you and you and i can understand that i think but maybe the average person listening has no idea what we're talking about maybe they're open and they have some empathy and they can get a sense of what it is we're dealing with here
1: Mm -hmm. It's the the saying to me, for example, from the time I was a little girl, you don't have to say you're Mexican. You can say you're Brazilian, or you can say you're whatever, all these other things. And not with words, but constantly alluding to the fact that you might not know something. I have a colleague who once I put... I don't know what I did. I didn't put a, a syllabi or syllabus. I don't know what I, which one I, you know. But I wasn't paying attention to that because things were bigger than that. Well, she made a whole deal about correcting me. That's another micro or macro aggression because that didn't really matter. But in her mind, I don't know the difference between syllabi and syllabus there's this assumption that we are somehow illiterate in some way, that we don't know how to get from point A to point B. And we happen to get there by chance. I happen to get a master's and a PhD from Stanford by chance. you know. Barack Obama happened to become president <laughs> um, by chance. And they don't understand that we've already studied that situation five times and that we know three times more than they do. So that type of assumption that is continuous is very tiresome. And I, I loved the COVID period because I didn't have to run into people that made assumptions about me. And so I try not to make assumptions about other people and try to respect anybody I run into respect is probably the most important thing for me. It's ongoing, especially the more education you have, I think, now, because I work around a lot of PhDs, but PhDs make a lot of assumptions. (laughs) So those are some examples.
0: Could you read the poem Indians on page six?
1: Yes, of course. To be an Indian with India in your heart, you must mow the lawn of your new country masterly, as if you were going to cook the grass for your love. Await oh, for the rain to speak. Make conversation with the drops of blood that fall from your immigrant subconscious and turn them to honey. Indian immigrants, tread slowly, reminding you they're one of 5% of the 100 who made the cut of professional Indians who arrived in the New World, where the First Nation Indians were not treated so well. You must be a different type of Indian. Even if rebellious, intellectually engaging, and brilliant, even if you have to eat meat, you won't fall on the empty violence of strangers, jerky eaters, turkey for Chilean immigrants, carnitas for all the meat-eating Mexicans. Rightfully treasuring from afar, you will honor the vegetarian ways of your embracing memories the changing embraces of your carnatic chants. You must always look at the road ahead of the road, strategizing love, sheltering your hands in pockets of electronic proportions, whisper sweet nothings into the superhuman child you are supposed to be create, produce, iterate future impossibilities, heal yourself from distance and all the wounds of others of the color of your experienced body.
0: I think there's a story behind the phrase Carnatic Chance.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, That's
0: what what I'm hoping you'll you'll tell about.
1: I stayed um, in the South, in Chennai, with my colleague's mom, um, Sita Naranayan. Sita Naranayan is a famous Carnatic singer. And you know what that is, right? That they sing with their throats. And um, beautiful, uh, it's a meditation. And uh, were you gonna play some something?
0: <laughs> I, could, I could put some in here if I found some. No, I- I just found that uh, I figured there was a story mm-hmm. behind that. Otherwise,
1: there's, there's a very, very big story. She was the most humble woman in the world, yet she had all these people or all her followers. So I went to several concerts, and where she was performing. So here I was, um, you know, in my biggest gig of all times. But I was with a woman who had gigs every day, and um, the most amazing host as well. And there's many other stories that come with that. I arrived in India. It's very funny with all these boxes of of, of salmon from Bartels, because I was going to, you know, those are my gifts usually that I take abroad. It's the salmon and the honey and the from the islands and. And I had to sit on my bag because the Indian customs agents wanted to open everything, all my boxes. And I said, no, if you open them, I can't gift them. So I sat on them so they wouldn't open them. And I said, you call your, you know, supervisor, uh, supervisor, Mm -hmm. whatever. I'm waiting here. Uh, And then it occurred to me, I can show them the program. I'm invited by the government to come to this. Um, and so I sat there for an hour, nothing happened, and then I show them that I'm one of the poets reading at this International Poetry Festival, and I get tea, (laughs) tea and cookies, I don't know what they call them, I was trying to remember what they call the cookies, but, uh, and a chair, and of course I get through customs, and I was so, you know, I felt, oh, what a wonderful <laughs> triumph, <laughs> and I get to the place to um, with Sita after the conference, because I wanted to spend more time in India, and uh, they were so kind to host me, and I have all these gifts for her, but she's a vegan, And of course, she doesn't want my fish. Not only does she not want my fish, but my bag starts moving little by little to the balcony, right, my bag with all the fish boxes that I had to bring back some of them. Now, this is the south of of India where it's common that people are vegan. In the north, uh, there's a lot more. uh, It's not, I don't wanna make the mistake in saying that all Indians are vegan or vegetarian. But in the South, it is very common. So I always, you know, here I'm a specialist on cross-cultural issues.
0: <laughs> and you got schooled in this, in this case. The, is the honey out too? Is the honey no good? Cause...
1: No, the honey was fine. Yeah. But I had more salmon than honey. Unfortunately, I learned that. That's right. But um, we learn so much when we travel. It, it, I tell my students, it's not about the other people. It, or about the language, it's about you, what you're going to learn about yourself and all your stereotypes and all your biases, and what you don't know that you think you do. So that's what this book and this collection was about. Yeah.
0: Mark Twain paraphrased, um, said that uh, travel is the worst enemy of ignorance. Mm. So maybe that's uh, what applies here. You're relating here in this poem that you just read and in the book as an Indian. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's uh, implicit in the title, How Many Indians Can We Be? Mm
1: -hmm. Tell
0: us about that aspect of your own heritage.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, most Mexicans are mestizos. And I know that a lot of times, given that um, native people in the United States have been given so little and sent to reservations, a lot of times they say, no, you know, we're more Indian than you are. <laughs> and initially, this, this book began with that conversation in the back of my car with my son and this, my two sons and this East Indian boy. Um, and he was telling them, uh, as we passed, when we got to Seattle 23 years ago, there was no category for Mexican or Chicano in the Seattle City Schools, if you can believe that. So um, I told my, my sons that the closest thing would be indigenous because my father is, if not pure, he's Tepehuano from the mountains of Durango. And so we passed a totem pole and they said to this East Indian boy, our ancestors built that. Right? <laughs> they were so proud to, you know, tell him. And he said, no, they didn't. He said, you are not Indians, and I am more Indian than you because I'm from India, right? So that was like, he was actually, his mother and father were from India. He was born in the United States. But you know that indigeneity, that discussion, that colonialism, and I found so many ways in which we had similar colonialisms. We'd been colonized in a similar way. I found it very interesting, for example, I have a poem about this, how what was important to them were the floors. So at my hotel, which had been, this is where they put me from the Nagpur government. They set us up, the poets, in an old country club where they played all types of sports and equestrian country club. and. The walls were not perfect, it's not that they were terrible, but they were not manicured, but the floors were. And as soon as you passed, there was a boy wiping your steps, you know, the marks that you had made on the floor. And that was so interesting to me, so I went and researched that, it turns out that there had been a disease in the past that had wiped out a large, like La Peste in Spain, right? Like the Black Plague or perhaps COVID right now that had wiped out, that, that started with their feet, that they would catch with their feet. So there's a history in why people do things, right? So this was a little bit of a historical poetry.
0: Yeah. You use the word mestizos in the poem Tamed Tongues on page 26. Mm -hmm. That's also a fine poem. Yes,
1: yes. Tamed Tongues, Lenguas Domadas. What we share in common amongst the seas of languages that detonate difficulty on the plain, plain, culturally, is that we are mestizos. We are all tamed by the language we work in. 1 billion Indians and 50 million Latinos with a dilemma of what step to take first in saying, "Mm, I've come to learn the English of evolved colonization, the effects of, I don't want to pressurize you, ma'am, much little. Ma'am, 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 ma'am. The word is a cut on the flesh of language. The background noise of adversity, the buzzing of the precedented beast, the tracks of colonization have reached domains unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I want to read you the first one, if you don't mind. No, please. And that is because it's also about bees. <laughs> it's apiary of the unconscious. We go back, like bees, to the same incontinent, prefixed thoughts. We dispossess the passion of our skin by slipping it under the mattress, like a fitted sheet, a stapled Mercado plastic frame. We spill at the possibility of light, when to give light is also to birth. We chatter at the senses, multiplying by zeros, be it light of painting a desire, be it smell of inscripted horizons, be it taste on the fruit of words, be it touch of cyber-continence, be it the music of dissonance. We subconsciously await the hexagonal wall of forgetfulness. With precise hands copulate at the physical possibility of remembrance like bees we trust the cleanliness exactness of pattern into being connect the dots upon becoming what we already are work at the drop of a sombrero <laughs> breathe at the drop of a hat
0: oh i mean that uh, the same incontinent prefix thoughts i mean isn't poetry part of its task? It is And you say it later in the poem, something about uh, connect the dots upon becoming what we already are. So is poetry for you a process of learning more deeply who you are? Do you believe
1: that? I think it used to be, Paul. I think it used to be, in my 20s and 30s, a process of learning who I was. I think I know who I am, and I think that right now it's more important for me to expand to others a possibility of opening themselves up and catching, you know, the drops of of a poem, <laughs> the drops of a poem, the droplets I, I want to infuse into people. Because we don't talk about this necessity for spiritual enlightenment. We have become such um, a materialistic country. I'm not going to say the past was better, because it wasn't. But here we are waking up in other political ways, in other ways about becoming more equitable, about becoming better people. But we're also not infusing people into this necessity that we have For me, poetry is like drinking water. You can take away everything else from me, but don't take away poetry. and so I want to share I'm almost like a like a bad uh you know an evangelical <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but I'm also an I'm a, an evangelical. Poet stunt. <laughs> yeah. I want to let people know that they can enjoy their words, that they can enjoy this growth that comes from writing poems.
0: Yeah. There's a phrase in tamed tongues, evolved colonization. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets back, as I see this question on my list of potential questions, I think this is the same thing as the paper cuts, the paper yeah. cuts of colonialism. You already explained one. And that's yeah. what it is. It's, uh, in Seattle, it seems to be rather refined, that evolved colonization.
1: Absolutely.
0: Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> Without naming any names?
1: Oh, yes. I, 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 I won't name any names. When I got here, I was very impressed by people reading on the bus, you know. And you went to a coffee house, and okay, I said, well, this is their way. They're (laughs) listening and, and learning, and it's all this learning, right? But there's a lot of learning, but there's not a lot of implementing. They're not implementing, they're not practicing what they learn, and They think that because they read three poems on immigrants or three books that they know immigrants. But when there's an immigrant right there downtown who needs directions, they look at them with fear and they don't give them their half a sandwich if they tell them that they're hungry. They run the other way So that's one of the things I've seen. And I'm not even speaking about all those other sophisticated ways in academia that people are not recognized, in society that people are not recognized. If you are different than the rest, you are not recognized. On the contrary, you're invisibilized. And so... We basically want to make a fruit salad out of everything. (laughs) It's okay if it becomes part of your fruit salad, but if that fruit doesn't go with your fruit salad, then you're going to throw it away. Better yet, you are going to use it in your... I mean, you're going to do the politically correct thing, right? Which is throw it in your compost. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so I feel like a lot of invaluable people get thrown into the compost here. And yes, they will be perhaps used to fertilize the earth. But that was not what should have been intended for them. So in other words, difference, but it's difference that is similar to mine. That is what The Northwest established people want difference that is similar to mine, with which I can identify.
0: Poem on page thirty-two, Bernardo, is the short version of the title. Okay, but I think that gets into some territory that Uh, I find fascinating. Yes.
1: Uh, Do you want me to read the quote from somebody Yes, I think so, yes. And it's Buscando Agujas en el Pajar, Looking for Needles in the Haystack. Quote, I had been writing with the syntax of my father's Spanish without being aware of it. It was there. It was underneath my English. It's probably what makes my English unique. There's an animism that's probably underneath the Spanish that comes from pre-conquest languages. But I think that all of those culturas, even though the languages may have disappeared, are still there in our way of being, in our way of speaking. And quote. Sandra Cisneros from Literary Hub 2020. And this is the poem. His languages have disparate ages. La lengua de sus padres, his parents, older yet palpitating with surprise. The other, younger, embracing him with cordial welcome, surreptitiously dipping his culture in a box of popcorn. Pop, pop, pop. He is throwing out a spat to catch a mackerel. An inexistent but important word from his childhood to collect the word that connects him with the other hymns like a surgeon reconstructing the language of living will tattooed onto a woman's heart, deleting memories of how he thought a word felt, agonizing at the verge of speech, repeating mistakes to know he exists in an unrecorded CD, muesar for gozar, another language, until he finds the errorless error and bereaves the word, the feeling in the word gone, existing only in his own personal Spanish, in his own feelings of language, in his own boomerang language, in his own circular spiraling universe, which he carries like a parasol, a luxury within a necessity, gone on his altar for Dia de los Muertos, Races a new word in a cradle of thoughts, Babies it by overuse, Snaps it into his shape.
0: (sighs) So much to unpack in that poem. One of them is the allusion to um, animism.
1: Yeah.
0: Another is, and although it was the quote by uh, Sandra Cisneros, um, speaking about or writing about the syntax of her father's Spanish, and Mm -hmm. uh, that being an indigenous, uh, you know, I think about, I I made the mistake of thinking that was you Mm -hmm. speaking, and then I realized, no, it's a quote, and you ended the quote, but that could be applicable to you, and you used it because you relate to it on some level. Yeah. Um, Talk to us about a couple of things. I think the notion of animism, Mm -hmm. and as I hear you read that poem, I think, and I'd like to know what you think, that animism, Those same colonizers would say this is superstitious Mm -hmm. BS, Mm -hmm. but animism seems to me to be what is missing from the dominator point of view that will help us solve the problem of climate breakage. Mm. Those two things I'd like you to speak about.
1: (laughs) Almost nothing. (laughs) Well,
0: take, take a small part of it and, and go from there.
1: Um, I think we have so much to learn from native cultures. We're just starting to realize that at universities. I was in Mexico last summer. They're working with my father's people, Tepehuanos. And uh, finally, finally, and getting ideas about the environment, about all these things that we need to do. but. I've had some crises in the last couple of years with my sons where I didn't know that, you know, that the car they one of them was using was going to allow him to get here. Very dangerous road that he was on. And so I told him to imagine all our dead people and that they were all in the car with him, you know.
0: Do they speak through your poems?
1: Yes, yes. And he made it, and any time that, for me, they are present, because they're present in the ways that I act. It's not that I try to be different, but what I try is to not have people change me in the way they want me to be like them. Because I, I treasure that, not because I'm stubborn, But I treasure my grandmother praying, who was raised by an indigenous woman on my other side, and praying to the four directions, you know, and praying for all these people, my mother too, praying for the lady who gave her an apartment when we were homeless in Chicago, you know, who trusted that she would pay her. And she would talk to her still, you know, And so all these people that are good to us, we keep with us. And that's part of animism, but there's so many other ways. For this boy, Bernardo, in front of an entire class at a university, he challenged me. You know, I have a BA, a master's and a PhD in Spanish, (laughs) but he challenged me because he said that word moesar did exist because his grandmother told him it existed. Mm. So, I think there's a middle of the road that we need to, yes, research some things, but we also need to take the learnings and and the company, because I see all these people that are lonely up here in the Northwest. I'm never lonely. Mm -hmm. I'm never lonely. I was left by the car in the middle of the road, uh, and I had to walk three miles to my house. I didn't want to wake up my loved ones. And I was not lonely. I was happy to go home. I would run into people, but I was not afraid of them mm-hmm. because I don't ever feel alone. Mm-hmm. And so all if you work with Maya people, if you work with Zapotecs, if you work with... You know, all those ways of thanking people, there's so many ways of thanking people in Zapotec, for example. They're just finishing up the first Zapotec dictionary because they have verbs that we don't have. Verbs for thanking someone for cooking for you while you help them build their house, right? words for taking care of your children, words that we don't even think about thanking people. So for me, gratefulness, compassion, perseverance, and respect are the four essential things that I try to live every day.
0: Amen. Wendy Call, right up the road, translating Isthmus Zapotec. We had her on the the program a a few months ago.
1: She's wonderful.
0: Well, speaking of the dead, there's a poem on page 56, Mm -hmm. Los Muertos.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, and I wrote this to make people laugh. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm also tired of, you know, the stereotypes of Diaz Muertos. I'm tired of Just
0: in case. (laughs) Yeah. Just in case we wanted to take this poem seriously. (laughs) Yes, I
1: want you to laugh because this is about my reflection on being a meat-eater in India. The dead. In my stomach, like virtual crosses, lie the hundreds of entombed chickens, dozens of cows, 80 pigs, in the shape of sausages, carnitas, meatloaf, a ham, hundreds of beef patties, two baby lechones, jamón serrano, a pigeon, an iguana, a snake, one side of deer, and even hundreds of chapulines I consumed before Mary's little lamb. (laughs) You can laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Chapulines are grasshoppers, which are the protein of the future, I am told.
0: Is that right?
1: Yes. We eat them. I have some at home right now. You can buy them up the street at uh, Michoacan, Mercado Michoacan, yeah. Hundreds of chapulines I consumed before Mary's little lamb, humiles, la pan au pruno, canard a l'orange. <laughs> they are the sacrificial lamb of the conquest, my scarlet letter. <laughs> And the jumiles are chocolate-based ants. They're big ants that you dip in chocolate.
0: Very rich in protein, I understand. Yes. I might just have to stop at the frijoles negros. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's what I had for lunch. <laughs> so we're still we're still okay with beans, Paul. But yeah, um, it's so amazing when you. And also, when you see how much we eat, you know, compared to other people, it's like we really don't need to eat very much.
0: It's a bad habit, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a bad, it's a tough one to break, too. Yeah, <laughs> sign of prosperity. <laughs> no. That's what I when my dad had a little bit of an extra oh, weight, he yes. said that's to ward off disease. <laughs> that's it's what true. he said.
1: <laughs> but it's also when you come as not in your the case of your father, but in the case of my father who came from dire poverty, from being a... He had to catch fish for his for his mother so they could eat with his hands. He didn't have any other way to catch fish. But for him, eating meat was a triumph.
0: A sign that he's arrived.
1: He was there. I remember how he enjoyed his t-bone, you know, in the morning. If he had meat at every meal, whether it was chorizo, or whatever, carnitas, chicharrones. He was so satisfied because he could never, ever, ever think of eating those foods. So that's the other thing that we need to understand, that when people come from extreme poverty, they, uh, you know, people think Mexicans are all these meat eaters. Go to rural Mexico. You will see what they feed you. They feed you frijoles. Uh, you know tostadas or whatever frijoles chile tortillas arroz that's it and uh, calabaza you know so yeah there's all these stereotypes we eat all this meat at these mexican restaurants because that is prosperity to them
0: but the you know you just say the word chorizo and my mouth begins to water
1: Well, there's Tori soon, there's Chodí. So I have to bring you some, uh-huh. some good one. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Let let the uh, let the graveyard be in my stomach uh, for for a night. How about how about the poem? Hum, Pedro, hum.
1: Oh, I love that poem.
0: You read that at no irritable reaching,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it was so captivating.
1: Yeah. And
0: there's just something about your presence mm. that activates empathy. Mm. Um, it's it's really. Remarkable. I think part of it is your work, part of it is your being. Maybe the two things are the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing your capacity for moving myself,
1: mm-hmm. I would think
0: other people as well, emotionally, through the written word.
1: Oh, thank you. It's because I really mean them. This poem was written for Pedro Martin. Uh, he was. He gave me away when I got married. He worked with us. He was a sharecropper the most beautiful man, Mexican man. He's still alive. Hum, Pedro, hum. There are mountains in his nails. The earth shaped his finger He grew corn on the side of the strawberry milpa, frijoles, calabaza, y todo. His father is 90 to 100, 103 in the old pickup truck next to him. He serves Don Alejandro avena for breakfast with strawberries washed with the potable water and milk cartons all the workers bring from home. Eat the gorditas, Mercedes, the mother of 10, prepared for them tamales in plantain leaves for Don Alex to remember he's surrounded by the smell of bananas at home. In the afternoon after he wakes up, he inquires, Where's Pedro? ¿Dónde está? his father asks. One hundred mouths to respond, Aquí con nosotros, aquí con usted. All the young workers keep an eye on the Mexican revolucionario who fought To have his son, the crop-sharer Pedro, grow berries for a million hungry dry mouths. French mouths, Belgian mouths, ungrateful mouths, Safeway mouths, U.S. mouths, and mouths at the Salvation Army, mouths in migrant camps making agua de fresa, water with the strawberries. He engendered people to defend, teach, heal, feed, write about, draw, fix TVs, patch walls, police, build houses, sell houses, paint, serve in the Army and the Navy, sell vegetables and fruits, collect money, report, keep an office, sing as zookeepers, smile. Pedro. Hums an old Javier Solís song. Payaso, soy un triste payaso on the radio to which all the women in the fields sigh, <sighs> and they all remember they are not machines. I want to read you another one. This is El Umbral, The Threshold. From afar, as I sit at the recently built country club with recently falling apart sounds. I look up and I'm looking at a history rewound, children wiping the floors as shoes take away purity. Because in history it is the floors that tarnish their health, not yet looking at the walls in my room. In India their impeccable cleanliness is horizontal. And I know the walls of my country are sullied by slave, bracero, and women bloods, by urban youth and the chemicals soon to perish. I know 60 million-plus Americans dream of a wall as protection and not war, closeness and not distance, comfort and not repudiation. The interstice where most of us exist in our mythic homeland occurs to few. Nepantla is for some only history, is a foreign language, but wait. I know the floors grow vegetable spies with the anger of injustice. I know in my country, my mother lost her finger on the broccoli someone consumed unknowingly. Her blood made someone's child grow. She is a part of this North America, but they don't know it yet because they have been unaware of the floors, of the fields, of the growth, of the ajolotes, who can grow all their extremities back, like cars, while feeding others, while cleaning floors, while wiping walls and windows, while growing children, while making clothes, while paying for the children to become ajolotes.
0: How do those millions of people who believe a wall is an appropriate use of time, or money, how do they begin to wake up, Gabriela? What is your your hope for the best outcome for them?
1: I want to meet them. I know that if I had a conversation, um, a lovely conversation with them, and fed them some capirotada bread pudding. <laughs> um, I think we just we just don't know each other. That's what I believe. I I really, I don't think I've ever really met um, a truly mean person. I don't believe in in evil.
0: I see you queuing up another poem. Is that right?
1: Um, yes, I don't know which one you want. Uh, no, I,
0: I, I think whatever one you want to read is fine. You've already achieved all the ones that <laughs> I have written down for you to read. But maybe one as a, as a final... Um, oh,
1: a final one. Oh, a, no. I, <laughs> our time is ending. <laughs> I, suspect,
0: I suspect this is the first time we will get to do an interview, but that there will be future occasions.
1: Okay. I will read Once I Was a Guitar or Wewe we Coyotl. Have you heard that one, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Once I Was a Guitar or Wewe we Coyotl. In Aztec mythology, Wewe we Coyotl is the auspicious pre-Columbian god of music, dance, mischief, and song. He's the patron of uninhibited sexuality. Once I was an incandescent guitar. And they played my body, and I played my body, with silly poems and hair strings. The strings of my hair were strong and luminescent. They made multiple interminable notes, notes that only he could hear, hue coyote. In his universe of varied and unforgettable instruments, Once I was a trumpet to the Sonora Santanera rhythms and Gato Barbieri made me invent innovative stories from my literary horn. Sigala would know. And once all my musics put together made Africa sing. North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Africa de carne y hueso the Africa of voices and hairdos, the Africa of indiscernible colors, those inside the notes of a song, inside the undiscovered water, inside the hearts of babies who drool soul injustice. justice. It is the Africa we still have not dared to meet because our blindness is hidden under the ocean, the ocean of libraries without Africans. Today, I am no longer a stringed instrument or a horn. Today, I am you who reads these notes to your melody and sings and sings on, inventing the melody of you the world can identify. Invent the melody of you the world can hear and be joyous. We are, after all, instruments in the desert until someone plays or hears our unimaginable song.
0: I'm grateful that your songs are collected in books like this, and Mm -hmm. it's a real joy to be able to, um, to discuss it in this way, and I'm grateful that you're here and that you do what you do. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. Pablito, I look forward to future interviews
0: cascadian profit supporters include diana elser a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality humor and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri breaks and Western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods and Steinbrook Native Gallery located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle featuring fine art of the Northwest coast from emerging and established artists a link to their site at cascadianprofits.org Cascadian profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.